0: We've been doing this Fighting for Joy series on the festivals of the Old Testament and how they communicate, how God wants to give us joy. And um, one of the most obvious ones is, of course, the Sabbath, the seven every week celebration of rest that God gives His people. And as I was thinking about that some months back, I was like, oh wait, I have a friend who's writing a book on this. Um, So I invited my friend Adam Mabry from Boston to come and speak today. And um, he's here. So, so a while back, um, an a associate of mine, I was talking about like studying a little more on this, and she gave me a book on like rest, and I—what I often do when I get a book is I flip it over and I read about the author, and the author was this guy who like itinerantly speaks on rest, who lives with two golden retrievers on Vancouver Island. And I was like, I am NOT reading a book by this guy. On rest. Like, there's no way. So I kind of threw the book across the room. And, um, but like my friend Adam has like, I met him in 2003 when he came to raise money at my church. And because he wanted to go and re-evangelize Europe by going and planting churches in Edinburgh, Scotland, which had a church attendance at that time of about, you know, like one or two percent. And so he went there in 03 or 04 and they planted two churches. He was there five years and then Scotland didn't invite him to stay via his visa status, and so he said, what's the most secular city I can think of in America? And so he picked Boston, and so he started in Boston with nothing about the time. I came here to be the senior pastor at High Point, and so he planted a church, Lathe Church in Boston, which now I think has three campuses and is slightly larger than High Point, Point. and so he gets a lot done, right? And um, yet he's thought a lot about how do you rest, even if you're the sort of person that normally thinks of it as a sacrilege, right? And he's had to deal with that. So I wanted somebody like that to talk to Madisonians who think of themselves as competent, go get kind of people, right? So um, Adam, why don't you come? And he's a father. He's He's got a wife, you know, once one and four children. Let me pray for him as he comes up. God, I, I pray that as Adam speaks now, you'd um, give us an expectant attitude, an open attitude. We We know that when we think about rest— It could tell us—we could end up getting confronted about how we're living our lives, and that's, of course, very uncomfortable for us. Um, But let us start with the attitude that you're good. And if you want to do something to us, or change something about us, or confront something in us, or encourage us about some wound or something, that you're good. That everything you'll do to us is faithfully for our good, as well as for your glory. And so we pray that you'd give us open, listening, expectant, expectant, applying hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Nick. Good morning. How are you doing? It's good to be with you. Um, I'm very glad to be here in in Madison. Uh, Yes, uh, Nick is correct. I am from Boston. Um, Originally born and raised in Panama City Beach, Florida, where uh, college students go to break commandments, and uh, that's where I met Nick, not related to that endeavor. Um, At least, not on my part, I can't. Tess, I. <laughs> um, hey, just before I get started, um, and since I just saw Nick leave the room, uh, you have a great pastor. You have a really, really great pastor. You you have a great pastoral family. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, He's rare. I, 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 when when I'm not doing book stuff, uh, I, I consult my network of churches and do a lot with church planting, and I, I assess a lot of pastors and church planters, and you have a very rare human being. So, praise God uh, for him and his awesome wife and their, and their amazing kids. <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah, so I, I pastor Aletheia Church in Boston, and uh, we are… Nestled between Harvard and MIT, and um, that that makes me sound like I'm smart or that I know what I'm doing. I have a I have a degree in music from a state school, and and God sent me to preach to Harvard people, and I think that's hilarious. Um, <clears throat> and so I'm not super smart, but I do play someone smart on Sundays, and that's almost the same. Um, uh, I, I am very glad to be with you here, though, as you have been in this teaching series, Fighting for Joy and the Rhythms of Joy. I, I appreciate the idea of fighting for joy because joy is, in fact, something uh, for which you must fight. Happiness is cheap and easy. It is the junk food of the American dream. But joy, joy is the, is the diamond found in the mine of the Christian scriptures and the Christian life. You've got to dig for it, but when you find it, man, it's way better it's way, way better. And so I'm glad that you guys have been thinking about that and reflecting on that. And then in this recent series, like, what what does it look like to practice rhythms of joy? And yeah, rest is definitely one of those. And, uh, and, and so it, it's, it's hilarious to me that, that I'm the one telling you about rest because I'm not known for being a particularly restful person. In fact, this weekend while I was hanging out with Nick, he was like, you're exhausting. And I was like, well, you're wrong, but that's OK. Um, <coughs> uh, so it, it's, it, is a, it is a very great pleasure to be with you. I, I like to introduce my family whenever I go somewhere. And so this is them. Uh, this is my growing collection of humans. Um, and uh, yes, uh, um, <coughs> top right, that's my wife, Hope. She's amazing. We are high school sweethearts. I met her in math class when I was 15. Um, uh, she, she got an A. I got a C because I was distracted. Um, <laughs> Uh, so we've been together for a while. Um, these are the people we created. Uh, Alana is my little girl clone. Bottom left, she's about to turn 13, so you can pray for me. Um, she's uh, she's great though. Uh, top left is Nora. She is my she's my warrior princess. Man, she's amazing. She is um, constantly just outside exploring, and uh, is, she's a really cool kid. Cole uh, just won his first basketball uh, tournament uh, yesterday. I'm pretty excited about that, given my stature that I created someone that's decent at basketball. I'm pretty, fight your genes, man, I'm pretty excited. Um, <clears throat> and then Wyatt, uh, top center, Wyatt is part of a new program uh, with uh, Al-Qaeda. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pilot program they do where uh, they, they put children who destroy everything in the homes of American families. Kind of a long term goal um, and, uh, Wyatt, Wyatt's why why it's great um, Wyatt's uh, initials spell the word wham which ironically is the sound he makes most frequently he is all boy all the time just jumping off stuff constantly dirty bleeding for reasons we don't understand just he's uh, he's uh, he's our version of going out with a bang in terms of one's reproductive life so uh, yeah uh, we're we, we we like we we like him and, and it's, it's, it's really fun to be with you. At some point, I'll, you know, bring them here, hopefully, and then, uh, you know, maybe he can destroy your church building or something. I don't know. Um, uh, it's also nice to be in a church with a building. Our church is all rent space, and our, our largest congregation meets in a YMCA gym, and so I'm like, ooh, just constantly walking around like this, ooh, um, so at, at some point. Maybe the Lord will give us one of those. But today, I'm not preaching you about that. I'm preaching to you about rest. And so if you have a Bible, you may open it to the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Or if you'd just rather not, it's going to be on the screens. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. We're going to read the exact same commandment stated twice, once in the book of Exodus, and the next time in the book of Deuteronomy, but stated second the second time with a slightly different emphasis, and that will be the springboard from which we reflect today on what God would like to say to us. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." And then if you turn over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, we read this, "...observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt." And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for the Scriptures. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are among us when we gather and we open the Bible. You promised Jesus to send the Spirit to lead us into all truth, and I pray you do that now. I pray, Father, not just for an informational meeting, but a transformational encounter with the living God today. Lord, there are people in here who are just decades old in the Lord, and they they live wonderful lives, and they're great, and this is just a wonderful celebration of who you always have been. And there are others here who are barely making it to church and uh, feel at the end of their tether and are living through hellishness right now in different areas of their lives. There are some here who have not yet trusted Jesus and some who think they have but truly haven't. So, Lord, you know us all, and you know our situations, and you care deeply. So, would you minister to us through the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, a few years ago, I was at a conference, and uh, Minding my own business, attending, and uh, and and I think I had to teach a seminar. And I got an email while I was there from from uh, the company that is now my publisher, uh, saying, "Hey, uh, I want to meet with you and talk to you about writing a book." And so my response was like, (laughs) you know, I was pretty excited, felt a little flattered, like, "Oh, this is really exciting." And I thought, surely these people have heard of you know the things that I'm known for, like planting churches or preaching the gospel or looking great whilst bald or something. And that's not what they wanted to talk to me about. We got together and uh, sat down with this very nice gentleman named Carl. Carl said, we, we, we followed you for a little bit, and we, we want you to write a book. And I was like, really? Cool. I love writing. Uh, what, what do you want it to be about? And they were like, we want you to write a book on rest. And I was like, What? That's a terrible idea. <laughs> I think you might have emailed the wrong person because I am a twitchy New Englander. I live in Boston. I, my, my, my accomplishment thing is, is at a level 10. I mean, I walk by coffee pots and they start. Do you see what I'm saying? Like The kind of person that I am <clears throat> is I get things done. I only require five or six hours of sleep at night. I shoved my four-year degree into two years just because I could. Like, I, I'm, I'm a doer. I get things done. And you want me to write a book on rest? No. Um, <clears throat> But a while ago, I I did a teaching series on rest because I'm awful at it, and I thought, well, I live, I am an achiever in a city of achievers, and maybe we should all learn how to stop. In fact, the conversation started something like this. It was about May, and I was sitting down with our staff, and I was like, okay, summer's coming up, and here's what I'm thinking. It's the summer of growth, and I cast this big vision for, like, all these things we could do. And my staff were like, hey, Pastor Adam, we hate that. We're all a little tired maybe we could learn to stop. And I was like, what is this rest of which you speak? (laughs) So I started to study the Bible, and what I learned was that I'm really bad at it, and so is pretty much everybody else. In fact, in 2013, I hit the darkest part of my life that I have yet experienced. Our church was growing. Uh, we'd just gone from uh, one to two services, and at the same time, uh, we were launching a new congregation in downtown Boston, and uh, we had an 18-month-old child that refused to sleep at all, ever. Some of you have this child. Some of you have only had one child, and, and you sleep train that child really well, and you're proud and arrogant. And you think you're a good parent, and then I was you, <clears throat> and then God gave me Wyatt, and I realized, Lord, I'm sorry. Um, and, and at the same time, we had also bought a new home, which normally is a really fun thing, but I live in Boston and all the homes are really old. My home was built just you know, a decade or two after the Civil War ended. And it was a, uh, and it hadn't been remodeled much since. And so, me being the son of a contractor and custom home builder, had to get to work. So I'm working probably 60 hours a week at this point. I have a child that will not sleep. I have a house that needs probably 20 hours of uh, work, uh, a week of work, just to make it like livable. I'm ripping out drywall and putting in bathrooms, and I hit the outer limit of my capacity to achieve. I'd never found it before, but I found it then. And I went into the deepest, darkest depression of my life. It was awful. And I was a horrible human to be around. I was filled with self-pity and anger and angst. And uh, up to that point, I thought that depressed people just needed to, like, cheer up a little bit, a little little pep talk. That's not true. <laughs> I know that now. Um, and I learned that I have to learn to stop and rest And so, I want to share with you a little bit of that journey today, uh, particularly out of the Scriptures, because the rhythm of rest is absolutely critical for your capacity to find joy in God. And if you don't learn to stop, you will live a life that preaches a very different gospel from that with which you affirm with your mouth. So, in the Bible, we read today two different kinds of of Scriptures. I mean, the same command, rest but given for two different reasons, and I want to to tell you a little bit about why those commands were given. The rhythm of rest is extremely important first because the rhythm of rest is about who rules. The rhythm of rest is about who rules. The first version of this commandment, if you remember, we read, you know, take a Sabbath, you, your ox, your donkey, everybody, everybody around, stop one day a week. Why? Because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them, and then He rested Therefore, the Lord blessed this day and made it holy. When we refuse to stop, what we say with our lives is that actually we're the ones who, at the end of the day, are the most responsible for getting stuff done. When we refuse to stop, when we refuse to keep going, when we refuse to hit the pause button, when we, when we don't apply enough faith to stop, we actually are acting in anti-faith to the God who created the world. This is an extremely important point. God makes the world in these six creation days and then rests on the seventh, and He didn't rest because He needed to, right? It's not like God was like, whew, that was a lot. Like, it wasn't like, I mean, God spoke and stuff happened. Why did God rest? God rest? God rests at the end of His creation week as if to be enthroned upon the thing that He made, breathing in the air He just created, recognizing its goodness. When we rest, we actually acknowledge, God, you're in control. God, you're sovereign. You see, many of you, you're, you're the kind of people who, who are out there, you're trying to get things done. I can look around and see some of you are, are quite young, and so you're at that part, that stage of your life where you're, you're trying to ascend. You're trying to find the spouse or get the degree or get up in your career or whatever, and so it's all about the hustle, right? And so you're getting things done, and so the lie that we tell ourselves at that stage of life is, I've got to get things done, and I'll rest later, I'll stop when it's easier. I'll stop when I graduate. I'll take a break as soon as grad school's over. I'll stop as soon as we get married or get the house or get the kid or get the car or get the job or get the upgrade or get the, you know, whatever. And as soon as I get to this thing, then I will have earned the right to stop. But what you're saying when you live that way is that you're really the one who's most in charge of your life. You're really the one who rules. You're really the one who makes things happen. And if you stop, it won't work. And that is idolatry. It's a lie. It's not true. Which I'm sure if we passed around a belief statement, most of you would check the box, I am not an idolater. I do, in fact, believe the Lord created the world and, like, sustains it. But the way you live, I'm not sure, tells the same story. Certainly the way I was living was not telling the same story. And I'm a pastor. The rhythm of rest is about acknowledging, God, you rule. This is extremely important in the early Israelite community because in that, uh, in that post-exilic community, I mean, they're coming out of the land of Egypt. God wanted them to understand, I'm the one in charge. I mean, one way to understand those ten plagues that God sicked on the, uh, the Egyptian people was His t- one-at-a-time um, just turning over of the false gods of the um, Egyptian pantheon, as if to say, nope, I'm in charge of the Nile. Nope, I'm in charge of the sky. Nope, I'm in charge of the, of the cattle. I'm in charge of everything. Yahweh was flexing his muscles over Set and, you know, Ra and all of these false gods to show that he is, in fact, God. Strange practice, then, it would be for those very people whom God rescued to begin acting as if they were the ones in charge of the world, Right? We who are followers of Jesus have a far greater miracle to look back to, namely when our Savior rose from the grave and now sits enthroned on high next to God the Father and in so doing utterly destroys the works of God's enemy, the false god king of this world. So we must stop to acknowledge His sovereignty just as they must have stopped to acknowledge God's sovereignty. The rhythm of rest is about who rules. Now turn over to the next Scripture, though, because in Deuteronomy we read the same Scripture, but it's for a different set of reasons. Observe the Sabbath, sounds the same. You, your ox, your donkey, everybody. Why? Verse 15, you shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Wait, so the first reason that God gives for our resting is to acknowledge the fact that He's the Creator, and you're not. The second reason is to acknowledge the fact that He's the Redeemer and you're not. Rest is about who redeems. The rhythm of rest is about acknowledging I cannot rescue myself from that chaotic hellishness which exists in me and outside of me which seeks to destroy me. When I stop, I stop to remember God is the one who saved me. I am not the one who worked really hard to either become savable or save myself. Conversely, when we refuse to stop, we... The very people who preach the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone do a lot of other things to suggest it's not really quite true. I mean, imagine this. The very people who worship God, who said as His final words, it is finished, come along quite quickly behind him and say, but yes, not quite yet. That's what we do with our lives through endless, ceaseless labor. It can especially happen to those of you who are involved in church. Some of you have really, really mistaken doing church things with knowing and abiding in God. They're not the same. I'm a big fan of church volunteers. We have lots of volunteers that make our church work, and I'm thankful for them. But I just tell them all, like, if you think that this, like, you're doing for God is somehow to be mistaken for you, are abiding with Him, or if your attitude isn't there, stop. We'll fold the chairs ourselves. You need to be with God. Rest is about who redeems you. God wanted His people to acknowledge He's the Savior. The, the story of the Exodus is actually where we get the language of redemption. It literally means to buy back. They were to remember that at one point they were the wholly owned property of Pharaoh, a false god-king who was the false mediator between a false pantheon and those people. It's the same thing for us, According to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1, you were all dead in your trespasses and sins and in the ways in which you once walked, following the false God, King of this world. You were born that way, into slavery to Him. But God, by grace through faith, has sent His Son, Jesus, to rescue you, to bring us through a better and newer exodus, so our restfulness must acknowledge our rescue. And when we refuse to stop we betray our lack of trust in that story. Certainly the case for me. I was believing, like, unless I worked really hard, unless I did these things, the gospel wouldn't advance. As if God was waiting thousands of years going, what are we going to do? Oh, good, Adam's here. He has a degree in music. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> but we, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say, but, but so often, I mean, the anxiety of doing and doing and doing to make sure things happen... Forces us into a, a a way of living that just looks very different than the confession we make with our mouth. Rest is about who rules and who redeems. Which sort of takes us into the third one. The rhythm of rest is about resistance. Resistance. Now, these two stories or these two uh, ways of, of explaining the Sabbath commandment weren't there just because God wanted them to understand a thing about God, but God was drawing a very bright contrast between Himself and the false gods that were there in Egypt. One way to read the entire book of Exodus is the God who is making Himself known to the world. This is God's big kind of introductory party to the world where He brings His people into the promised land so that they can be a light to the nations, right? But the way he does that is by drawing a huge contrast between him and the false gods of the ancient Near East, both in Egypt and in ancient Mesopotamia. Here's how the cosmology worked. The gods or God brought the world into existence quite by accident or through chaos. And in order for God or the gods to sit in a constant state of rest, we, God's slaves, must live in a constant state of work, giving him money, giving him food, giving him praise and worship so that we could be constantly working and he could be constantly resting. And God wanted his people to understand back then. I'm not like that. God is not the kind of deity who demands your ceaseless labor so that He can sit on His throne. God is quite already secure on His throne, and He doesn't need you for anything. Do you realize that God doesn't need you? Doesn't. It's great news that God doesn't need you. Have you ever had a friend who needed you? It's called codependency. It's gross. Yeah, it's a really unhealthy way to live. Any of you who've studied psychology know if if you're going to be, like, just the fastest way to have a really unhealthy relationship is to come to need someone, like, emotionally for your completion. God is not like that. God is not like that at all. He doesn't need us. It's better news. He wants us. It's far better to be needed than wanted. I'm sorry, far better to be wanted than needed. Thank you. should have gotten more rest last night. Darn you, daylight savings. (laughs) Yes, it's far better to be wanted, and God wants us, and that's really, really good news. And so, when we embrace the rhythm of rest, what we're doing is practicing a resistance to a culture that is permeated by a slavery to a false god-king. Listen, high point your life as Christians is meant very much to be a radical counterculture. Not in, a, in an ugly, kind of us and them, come ye out from among them sort of way, but in a very attractive, why don't you value the things we value sort of way. Why aren't you stressed about the things we're, we're stressed about? But the way, I mean, culture has never been more invasive into the life of the church. Most of you carry around a smartphone. I do too. You carry around in your pocket more computational power than that which sent the first people to the moon, and at your disposal, like the sum total of all human knowledge, good and evil, and four or five social media applications which are connecting you to all of the junk in the world with algorithms designed to stress you out by showing you all the people who are like you but better at being like you than you are. And so what can happen is we are just we have this constant, I mean, you, the old phrase of keeping up with the Joneses, and it's just even worse now. It's not about the Joneses across the street. It's about everyone who's kind of like you in the world. And so we live in a constant state of, oh, I'm not eating organic enough. Oh, I'm not being nice enough. I'm not parenting well enough. I'm not mommy, about The mommy wars on Facebook. You mothers, stay off Facebook. It's just the worst. All of it. It, it. It's very bad. And what it does, it, it imbues into your heart a sense of anxiety, and anxiety is merely what unbelief feels like. Anxiety is the emotion of unbelief. So, we feel like we've always got to do more. We've always got to be more. We've always got to, you know, get little Johnny to like one more, two more, eight more soccer matches. Can I tell you about Johnny's soccer career? Let me just be straight with you, high point. He's not going to be a soccer star. And here's how I know, because this is America, and no one is a soccer star. And you're like, it might send him to college. And you're like it might. It might also tear his ACL. And you know what happens when it will eventually tear his ACL? At every every college soccer player tears their ACL. It's like a rite of passage. And here's what happens when their soccer career ends. They better know that mom and dad value restfulness with God more than Johnny's performance. What Johnny's going to need when he's 25 and he can't run as fast anymore isn't more shoes and just if you've taken him to five more games, but rather parents and a church that were so rested in God that whether Johnny was amazing or Johnny was an abject failure at the things that you hoped he'd be good at, he's got a Savior who invites him to rest in him, not on the basis of his performance, but on the basis of Jesus' restfulness. That, that's, that, that American dream, part of it is really good, and part of it is really gross and acidic to your soul. You say, well, I can't rest because I've, to, I've got to get further up the corporate ladder. I've got to get a nicer house, or I've got to get a newer car. I've got to, I've got I've got to. And listen, I hear all of your excuses. I know that you're all b- very busy. I live in Boston, and we use busyness as cultural currency of importance. Oh, pastor, I would come to that thing, but I'm very busy. You know, blah, 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 blah. MIT, Harvard, blah blah, 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 that's what they do. And then, and then we use busyness as a compliment. Oh, I would have reached out to you, Pastor, but I know you're very busy, as if to say, I know you're very important, and so am I. These plebs, they're not very important. They can do the church things, but we understand each other. And I'm like, don't throw that on me. You're busy, I'm busy, and let's just all agree, we don't care. I don't care. I don't care how busy you think you are. I don't have less time or more time than you do, and you don't have less time or more time than I do. Busyness, time is like money. You will do with it what you want. And just like tithing, you give God a good chunk of your money, and it's amazing what He promises to do with what He lets you keep. Time's the same thing. It's the same thing. And if we constantly invest it in all of the things that aren't God small wonder then that we don't have much of a relationship with him. Here's a crazy idea. Sabbath was when you were meant to go to the temple, right? Like worship God. Okay, well, we're New Testament church now. This is not a temple, as far as I can tell, although it's way nicer than my gymnasium. Um, And so if I were the devil and I wanted to make sure that God's people didn't interact with God much, I would just make sure that they never had time to enter or to truly interact with what was truly the temple which is you all. I hear it all the time. I just wish, you know, I could, I could have closer friends or invest in more relationships. Well, if you come to church once every two to three Sundays and you only go to your small group once every vernal equinox, why are you so surprised that you don't have deep and abiding relationships with, with other men and women of God? You've chosen what you wish to invest your life in and you are reaping the reward. Now that you say, that sounds harsh. And I say, yes, I know. I live in Boston. It's what we do. But it's true. When we embrace the art of rest, what we're saying is, I'm not going to live that way because that way is chaotic and hellish, and I don't want to play that game anymore. I grew up in Panama City Beach, Florida. My father is a developer, and and we, we grew up around really wealthy people, and it's an interesting thing to start your life where a lot of people want to end theirs, right? like where a lot of people want to end up after having like worked really hard and like buy the boat and buy the buy the beachfront property and buy the yacht and like do the whole Florida thing. It's a really, it, affords, it afforded me a very interesting perspective because we'd go play golf with these folks and we, you know, my dad would build a lot of their homes and stuff like that. And they were m- among the most miserable human beings I had ever met on their second or third or fourth family worth tens. T- hundreds sometimes of millions of dollars, living the dream, having the cars and the vacation and the lives, and finding out that the thing for which they had burnt through their life to achieve was not giving them the rest it promised. So, we live in this weird way where we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. We're damned if we don't get that dream because we'll always have wanted it, and then we're damned if we do because we'll get it and find out it doesn't actually produce soul-deep rest. It will not give you joy. If you want to fight for joy, if you want to live in a rhythm of joy, you have to learn to stop. You have to learn to stop. Walter Brueggemann wrote a book on Sabbath, and in it he says this, in our contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath is a point of both resistance and alternative, It's resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. Such an act of resistance requires enormous intentionality and communal reinforcement amid the barrage of seductive pressures from the insatiable insistences of the market with its intrusion into every part of life, from the family to the budget. But Sabbath is not only resistance, it is alternative. It is an alternative to the demanding, chattering, pervasive presence of advertising and the great liturgical claim of professional sports that devour all of our rest time. The alternative on offer is the awareness and practice of the claim that we are situated on the receiving end of the gifts of God. The rhythm of rest is about resistance, which takes us to my last idea. I think the rhythm of rest is about time, as in it's about time that you give it a whack. Like, it's about time, that like, it is actually about time and the way you use it, and it's about time you, you try. The rhythm of rest, it, it does inquire, it require, as Brueggemann suggests, a high degree of intentionality and a huge amount of communal reinforcement. And so, when I was coming out of the dearth of my depression, I began a practice of stopping. Now, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian because I'm a pastor, and Sunday is not restful for me. So Sunday, you know, I tend to work like 18 or 19 hours, so I, I stop on Friday, and I, I, Friday is holy of holies for me and my family, and I, I, it's, not, it's not that I become extra super holy on that day. I do read my Bible a little bit more. I might take a nap. I turn my phone off, and I don't answer any emails, really, and I try to be a bit more available to my kids and, like, do some things that are restful for me, and if you want to know how all that looks, you may buy the book <laughs> or two to 3,000 copies, whatever, um, <clears throat> But the point is, it, 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 it requires a practice. Some of those practices are daily. Like I've, I've, I told my assistant I'd like to have like a five-minute gap between everything that I do in the day so that I can stop and just pray for the thing that I'm about to do and, th- and give God gratitude for the thing that I had just done. Weekly, I, I, I stop. Most weeks, I don't get real bent out of shape if something crazy happens and I can't. And then, like, annually, I stop and I, I try to take a vacation. And look, I know all the excuses. I'm super busy. I have demanding kids. My job won't let me. I don't have m- enough money. Like, okay, I'm also super busy and have really demanding kids. And I pastor a church, and uh, we're not known for getting paid a ton. So I get it. But I'm trying. As Nick suggested, I'm not, I don't live with two golden retrievers on Vancouver Island, Um, I live with four rabid humans who don't pay rent as roommates and, uh, you know, constantly holding back the entropy of my old home and trying to advance a church mission and, like, write a book and, like, remain married well and, like, all of those things just like all of you. But I've begun to practice the art of rest, and it's super rewarding most of the time. Sometimes it's amazing. Other times it's more of an act of faith. But when I do this, when I embrace this rhythm and acknowledging, God, you're the, re- you're the ruler of the world. I'm not. God, you're the redeemer of my soul, and I am not. And God, I'm going to resist the cultural pressure of this false kingdom of this world because I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and eventually, at the end of days, the kingdom of heaven is going to invade and utterly displace the kingdom of this world, even as heaven and earth are reunited in a lasting embrace, and I'm going to live for that now. So it's an act of faith. This is what's so amazing about being a follower of Jesus is that we follow a Savior who invites us to rest in Him, not work for Him. He invites us to rest in Him, not do more, so that we can earn or prove our worth. That's not what following Jesus is about, and if you think that's what it's about, you should repent This is not true. He invites us by grace to be in relationship with Him, to know Him. He adopts us into His family and is happy to call us His brothers and sisters. He is the one who has come to demonstrate that God rules. But think about this. Jesus didn't start His work until He was like 30. He was pretty chill about it for a while, making furniture, being a good son. Good furniture, not like that Ikea stuff, like good stuff. I mean, imagine like on your to-do list, up for life. It was like, redeem everything. <laughs> Die for the sins of humanity. You might, you, might, you might counsel someone doing that, like, maybe you should get started around, like, you know, now. Um, and Jesus waited until He was, like, 30. And then for three years, His ministry was only three years long, and He regularly was noted in the Gospels for peeling away and being with His Father, for going and resting, for sleeping in the middle of a storm. But when you rest with God, you can sleep in the middle of storms. Listen, I'm going through some stuff in my life right now that it would be completely inappropriate for me to share with you, but it's hellish, and I'm sleeping because I'm not in charge of it. And at the end of the day, I'm not the one who can save it. And I'm going to resist the temptation to convince myself that I am because I have a Savior who already did enough to demonstrate God's sovereignty and rulership, who's already done all to redeem me and everyone who needs saving, and who utterly resisted the temptation to be conformed to the patterns of this world so that I, by faith in Him, might be brought into His restfulness, which is why He says things like, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yeah, that wasn't a joke. He, like, actually meant that. You, Madisonian stuff getter dunners. You who are like me, like type A, high D on the disc, achievers, you know, who like live and die by your to-do list. Us too. He offers us rest in Him. Jesus is the one who rules, who redeems, and resisted the false demands of this world, and died and rose in order to win true Sabbath for His people. And He invites you who are weary and heavy laden to rest with Him, Maybe some of you are a lot like I was in 2013 and you're fighting through depression. Man, I'm sorry. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I hated that season. I am glad, though, for the wound of grace. I am glad to have a God who will knock the wind out of me so that I won't kill myself. And I am glad for a God who has been wounded to give me grace. And I am glad... That in Christ, even in the storm, man, even in the storm, I can, I can rest, I can take a nap in the boat, because the biggest, scariest wave, is stilled at the voice of my Savior, not at my shouts and cries. And the most stressful and tenuous moments are not to be redeemed by my overwork and exertion and anxiety, but my restful trust, my counter-cultural, counter-intuitive restful trust that Jesus Christ rules and he redeems, so I can resist and trust him. Some of you are followers of Jesus, and you're in a dark spot. My invitation is you really can rest in him. You really can. Some of you, you aren't yet followers of Jesus. So here's what I'd ask you to consider. Who better to follow? You're going to follow somebody, and it won't be yourself. That's the lie. You're going to be in charge of yourself. It's hilarious. You can barely remember to make your bed. Be more realistic. You and I are born enslaved to the false god king of this world who demands we burn through our lives so that he can remain enthroned. Jesus has displaced him from his throne. His life was burnt through so that we can walk in actual rest. And my invitation for you today is to know him, to trust him, to rest in him, even in the darkest of times. He will be enthroned. He will be demonstrated to be the Redeemer, and you will live a countercultural beauty that is very attractive to your city. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, you love this people, and I believe that this house and this church, its best days are ahead. Father, I pray that even as their church grows, and it will, and even as they add more people and baptisms and staff and church plants and all of those wonderful things, God, that they won't be marked by anxiety, but restful wonder at what you're able to accomplish in our hardest work
0: and our best rest. I bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.